If you need help getting Social Security disability benefits, then this podcast is for you. Give me 15 minutes and I'll pull back the curtain on disability and reveal the secrets to winning I've learned over the past 25 plus years. Hi, I'm Jonathan Ginsberg and I'm a practicing Social Security disability lawyer. I want to help deserving claimants just like you win the benefits you deserve and not one penny less. Now, if you already know you need help today, go to ssdanswers.com for a free and confidential evaluation of your case. It takes just two minutes. That's ssdanswers.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back to the Social Security Disability Podcast. My name is Jonathan Ginsberg, and my goal with this podcast is simple. It's to demystify the disability claims process and to give you the information and tools you need to win your case. Today, I've asked attorney Lisa McNair-Palmer to join me in talking about what you can and should expect from your lawyer during your represent, during his or her representation. Now, if Lisa's name sounds familiar, that's because I had her on a previous episode where we talked about what she calls no drama hearings. Now, I got a ton of positive feedback on that episode, so naturally I asked Lisa to come back. In this episode, Lisa and I talk about what I would call reasonable expectations. You know, the Social Security Disability process, the adjudication process, can take 18 months, 24 months, 28 months, even longer. And during this time, you may wonder, what is going on with my case? Um, To put this another way, is there anything that you can do or that your lawyer can do to speed up the process? And should you be doing anything particular while you wait? Or should you not be doing things in particular while you wait? What should you expect from your lawyer? And what does your lawyer need from you to make your case stronger? So without further ado, here's my conversation with Lisa McNair Palmer about reasonable expectations. I've got Lisa McNair-Palmer on the line with me, and I want to talk to her about um, what I would call managing expectations. This social security disability process can take one year. It can take 18 months, two years, two and a half years. And as I tell my clients, that's a marathon. That's not a sprint. That's a long time. And when you've got a case in your office from the attorney's perspective for two years, you've got to have an effective way of keeping your clients in the loop, but you obviously can't talk to somebody every week because there's nothing to report, you know, for sometimes weeks or months at a time. So let me start by asking you, Lisa, how often do you like to hear from your clients and how do you like to hear from them? By phone, by email? What is the, what's the method you use to interact with your clients during this, let's say, two-year process uh, that a case may take while it's winding its way through Social Security's um, somewhat uh, convoluted system? Yes, and that's a kind description. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, it is. We, yes, uh, we up front, when we uh, take on a client, we let them know that uh, we want them to update us about certain important things, and those include if they change their phone number or if they move and change their address or if they get married, or if they get divorced. Um, We also ask them to call us when they have medical appointments or a visit to the ER or a therapy appointment. Um, So we, we basically ask them to update us 
And uh, usually we want them to do that by telephone. That seems to be, <clears throat> excuse me, the most um, efficient uh, and effective way for them to uh, keep track of their case with us and also to let us keep track of them and what's going on with them. Probably, you know, about once a month is ideal. And, um, you know, we, as you say, managing expectations is very important. And so we make sure that uh, when we take on a client, we let them know that there may be periods of time in their case where they hear nothing from Social Security and there's nothing happening. Uh, so our office may not be calling them. We certainly are not going to call them every week or something like that. Um, but we also ask them to call us when they receive any correspondence from Social Security or the state agency um, or if, for instance, they get a call from the state agency or Social Security. And I think by asking them to do all of those things, we do end up keeping um, a pretty good line of communication open with our clients. Got it. Well, I think that's, you know, it's really important. And that's something that you, we, we talked about before in a different episode. And that is, if you move, let your attorney know. If you get a new phone number, let your attorney know. Because it can be very frustrating when you, as from the attorney's perspective, when you need to reach somebody and the phone number is disconnected or the email bounces. So it is really important to, uh, you know, for everybody to make sure that the, the, the phone numbers are, are kept current. And that again, when you do get when you have a new medical test, when you see a new provider, that you let your attorney know. So it's a two-way, two-way form of communication. Uh, it's not well, and, and it, exactly. And if I may, something else that we do that is very important um, is that the first time that I speak with a person and I take them on as a client, I ask them to give me uh, the name and telephone number of at least one other person who I can get in touch with if I am unable to locate that client. So mm -hmm. if I'm calling, maybe we got a hearing notice and we haven't heard from the client and uh, we're trying to call them and maybe we sent them a letter and we still haven't heard from them, then I have someone I can reach out to and I always ask my clients, do I have full permission to give them information about your case, your hearing date, that sort of thing, and can I take information from them? And uh, usually they have someone uh, who can do that, and so that has really, really helped in many situations where we were having trouble reaching a client. Yeah, you know, what I've, I've done a couple of times is I'll even get on Facebook and I'll find them on Facebook and message them that way. And, you know, oh, yeah, you know, I, I, I forgot about you or I forgot the number. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, <laughs> you got to get creative in these, these respects um, with all the technology yeah. out there. It's very hard to have any, uh, any privacy. Everybody leaves a digital footprint someplace. So sometimes, you know, that can be a positive as opposed to the, the typical uh, negative on it. Um, exactly. And, and, you know, I know in my office, when the hearing notice comes in, we sort of, that we, takes on a frenzy of activity. What do you do in your office? You get a hearing notice. What happens then? What's the next step? Sure. It's, um, it's all hands on deck. Uh, you know, we're yes. working the case all the way along. But as you say, when you get that hearing notice, um, you need to kick it into high gear. And so what we do, Jonathan, is we will immediately go online and access that client's electronic file uh, that's with the Social Security Administration or the Veterans Administration. 
um, and we will uh, send a letter to the client with some attachments asking them to take a look at the list of medical records that um, is already in the file and let us know if there's anything they can see that's missing uh, so that we make sure we request all of the appropriate medical records. We'll also send them uh, authorization or release forms so that the medical facilities can release records to us. Um, and some facilities, as you know, have specialized release forms. They won't accept any sort of generic form. So we'll send out those special releases to the client so that they can sign those and get them back to us so we can request their records. Uh, we immediately start updating the medical records based on, again, what's in their file already, um, also based on what the client has told us along the way about their treatment, where they're getting treatment. Um, so we get that process going as early as possible because, as you know, sometimes these facilities will take a long time to produce medical records to us, and right. uh, we have an obligation to get all the records in to the judge at least five business days before the hearing. So uh, we, we're very aware of that deadline. Um, Something else that we do to prepare for the hearing is about two months before the hearing date, I have a legal assistant who will call the client and talk to them over the phone and just make sure that we know about all of the medical records that are out there. And uh, she'll go over some basic questions that the client may be asked at the hearing. Um, and then about three to four weeks before the hearing, I will meet with the client and finish preparing them for the hearing. And in that meeting, I try to make sure that I tell them what they can expect of this whole process because the, the thought of going to a hearing is very scary to a lot of people. And so I let them know, you know, how do you get to the hearing office? What happens when you walk in the door? Uh, you'll go through security. Um, what happens when we go into the hearing room? And what does the hearing room look like? Who is going to be there? And then I'll finish going over potential questions that they'll be asked at the hearing. And I talk to them about um, who the vocational expert is and what the vocational expert does. Um, I even talk to them about what they should wear to the hearing um, and uh, talk about how long the hearing will last, those sorts of things. And, um, of course, then between that meeting and the actual hearing date, my staff is following up on the medical records requests and we're submitting medical records and uh, preparing a letter at least five business days before the hearing. Um, to the administrative law judge if we have any medical records that haven't come in yet. Um, we strive to, to make sure we don't have to send that letter. Um, and then I'll meet with the client usually about 45 minutes before the hearing starts. And we'll talk again and I'll just kind of refresh them about the types of things that we want to stress for the judge. So, um, and then of course, as you know, some judges require that you do a pre-hearing memorandum right. laying out your theory of the case. And so we'll take care of doing that timely as well if the judge requires that. 
You know, one thing that you, you mentioned, and for those folks who are listening who don't have an attorney who think they want to do a hearing on their own, um, it's kind of implied in what you said, but, you know, once a hearing is requested, nobody from Social Security updates the medical records. You, as the claimant or your attorney, that's a big part of what we do is making sure the medical record, the file is updated, whether it's medical or um, non-medical records, for that matter, vocational records. But if you are doing this on your own, which is not a good idea in my view, um, you know, don't go to this hearing uh, with the last record of the file being a year and a half old, um, because you know you as the claimant or you as the claimant's attorney have the responsibility of keeping the records updated. And you, as I was listening to you talk about you know, all the different steps you're taking, getting these medical records, um, that's really a crucial point. And again, that's that's one of the big reasons why when folks say to me, "Well, I know I've got a great, you know, I've got a really strong medical case. Why do I need to mess with an attorney?" That's that's one of the reasons why, not just in getting the medical records, but like you said, being prepared for the hearing, knowing what to expect. Um, I've got a saying that I've, I've kind of derived from my own experience, and that is when you've never been to a hearing before, never been in a courtroom, you're focused on where to stand not where to, what to say. And part of what we do as attorneys, what I'm hearing you say is you're helping your client understand this is what I've got to say. And I'll take care of where you stand in the, in the procedure part, but you know, you got to focus on proper testimony and making sure the judge understands the picture you're trying to paint. Um, so exactly. that, that's what I, wouldn't that, that, that seems to, you know, that's just, to me, is, is sort of the, when somebody says, what do you do? And that's, that's really, we talked about this in a previous uh, a conversation about a no drama hearing. That's really the essence of it is um, no surprises. Don't know where to begin? Get my free Secrets to Getting Approved Survival Kit. Inside the kit, I discuss such things as how do you know if you have a case? What to do if you're denied? How to Avoid Common Mistakes, and my ever-popular How to Avoid Trick Questions from the Judge. Subscribing is free and easy. Just visit ssdanswers.com and look for the Survival Kit for instant access. Remember, time is eroding your position every day. Don't delay. Act now. That's ssdanswers.com for your free Survival Kit. Right, and I will see sometimes um, a case, Jonathan, where the person is saying they became disabled, for instance, in 2014, and they filed their application in 2015, uh, just as an example, and the Social Security Administration will collect some medical records in the early stages of the case, but many, many times... uh, I will get a look at the file and I'll see, well, Social Security only requested records from 2015 forward. Uh, They didn't help the client at all by uh, requesting records from the date they say they became disabled. And as you know, even earlier records can sometimes be important um, in a case. So. Many times, you know, you talk about people going it alone. They're they're not aware of these types of issues, and um, so that's where an attorney, as you say, can can really help. Um, and certainly, people can. They are allowed to represent themselves in hearings, and I don't recommend it. Um, I think, well, I have seen many cases that come to me for appeal, for instance, to the federal court where the person represented themselves at the hearing, and they lost, um, and they appealed it to the appeals council, and they lost, 
and we take it to federal court and we can make certain arguments based on the fact that this person did not have a representative. And many, many times we win those cases and uh, they're sent back down for a new hearing. And by that point, the client says, yeah, now I realize I do need an attorney at my hearing. Let me point out that appeals process, for those who know, that could be two, three, four years. So it's not something that's going to happen overnight. So your best bet is to try to get it right the first time at the, at the initial hearing. But uh, yeah, right. the saying, and that's, you know, he, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, I was just going to yeah. say, we, we tell our clients, hey, we try to win this at the earliest stage possible. But if we need to, we will keep fighting. And it, it can take years, as you say. Um, one final question. Uh, this is something that I, I struggle with myself because uh, I, I want to make sure that I give my clients the correct advice. And I have a, an opinion, but I'd like to know yours. Work attempts. Um, people, this whole process takes two years. You know, you, got, you need to have money. You've got to buy food, clothing, shelter, that sort of thing. What do you tell your clients about trying to work after they've applied for benefits? Sure, sure. Um, And that is a a very important issue. And when a client calls me, Jonathan, and they say, look, I can't put food on the table. I have no choice. I have got to go to work doing something. Um, And I tell them, hey, I understand that. You do what you have to do. And I think a person going back to work, excuse me, sort of cuts both ways in these cases. On the one hand, it shows that the claimant is not someone who just, eh, I don't want to work, so I'm going to file for disability. Um, It shows that they do want to work. Um, Then on the other hand, some judges will look at a a work attempt, even a part-time work attempt, as, well, you know, they could work 20 hours a week, so sure, they could work 40 hours a week. which doesn't make any sense, but some of them do look at it that way. So I tell my clients, if you need to go back to work, you do it. We prefer that you don't work more than 20 to 25 hours a week and keep your gross income uh, less than about $1,000 a month. Um, We find that within those parameters, we can still win their case um, in the appropriate cases. And we also tell them, if you go back to work, you've got to keep all your pay stubs. Um, You also need to save any receipts from what are called impairment-related work expenses. And I'm sure you know about those, uh, but many people don't think about that. If uh, uh, the claimant is taking medications and going to the doctor, maybe they're getting pain injections, maybe they got a back brace to help with back pain, uh, any of these things like that that allow them to do whatever work it is they're doing, uh, they need to keep those receipts because um, that actually reduces the amount of money they are considered to be earning by the Social Security Administration in appropriate mm-hmm. situations. So, um, but some people go back to work full time. And, uh, you know, I tell them, again, this is going to make your case harder, uh, but if you do go back to work full-time, uh, you need to keep track of your, your earnings, your hours, and um, I also have them think about uh, giving testimony regarding 
what happens at the end of a work day. Um, do they have to go home and go straight to bed? Um, also, if they're getting special accommodations in that workplace, maybe they get extra breaks. Uh, maybe they get to come in late or leave early on a regular basis. Um, I want them to get a letter from their supervisor that states that. Um, so when people need to go back to work, it can complicate their cases. Um, it can create a situation where maybe they go to work full time, but they can only maintain that for three or four months. Then we can make an argument that that's an unsuccessful work attempt. So there are, as you know, some things that you can do uh, to preserve the the claim, even though a person has returned to work. Yeah, or the other thing you know, I've done on occasion is I will change the claim from an ongoing disability claim to a closed period claim if they've been out of work yes. for 12 consecutive months. So that may be another thing. And another thing I've done a couple of times, I've had judges open to it. If someone goes back to work, let's say, for nine or ten months and then they stop, and then they're out of work you know, for an extended period of time, you can make an argument that the work they had should be considered trial work period months, even before disability was approved. And I've had that work a couple of times. So you're right. You've got to be yeah. creative sometimes. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. If somebody is, uh, is starving, you know, you've got to tell them you've got to do what you've got to do, and we'll work around it as best we can. And all we can do is provide the information they need to make uh, hopefully a wise decision in that regard. Well, exactly, and that's another reason to have an attorney on board is because somebody doing this on their own might incorrectly think, well, if I go back to work at all, it's over, I'm done, I can't get any sort of benefits at all. And as you say, there are some ways, uh, some of them pretty creative, to um, still get them some benefits, whether it be just back pay benefits for a closed period of disability or, you know, perhaps they can still get ongoing benefits. Uh, Lisa, how would somebody find you? First of all, where, what areas of the country do you practice in? Where is your office located? And how would somebody find you? Sure, sure. My office is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, but we represent people all over the country, primarily in Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, New Mexico, Missouri, and Kansas. And uh, so we appeal cases at all levels, and we do VA disability cases for veterans as well as Social Security Administration cases. Um, and uh, they can call and uh, reach me at 800-580-9335. The firm also has a website at aaadisability.com. And then uh, if somebody just wants to check me out, probably the easiest way to do that is to go on linkedin.com and search for Lisa McNair Palmer, and that's L-I-S-A-M-C-N-A-I-R-P-A-L-M-E-R, and uh, there they can find information about me and my practice, and I've also published several articles there uh, that they can take a look at. I've read those articles, and they're actually very good, so uh, keep publishing because I think uh, that really contributes to yeah, contributes to the uh, knowledge out there about uh, what can be a very confusing and uh, frustrating process that, uh, that we have chosen to, to make our, our living from. So in um, any case, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, and we will talk again soon. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. My pleasure. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. 
Subscribe to this podcast for regular updates at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this podcast useful, then please give me a five-star review because it helps others see the value of my information. Thank you in advance. For a 100% free and confidential evaluation of your case, visit ssdanswers.com. That's ssdanswers.com. Don't delay. Act now.